Well, good morning. Can everyone hear me in the back? Okay. I'm a little soft-spoken sometimes. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Ryan and I have uh, met through the Fire Academy and become good friends, and so he he and the pastor extended this invitation. So it's just a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be with you. And I hope to consider uh, something that we kind of sung about today, and I'm bound for the promised land. Uh, we sang about strife and sorrow and and struggle, uh, and we have a hope that one day that, that will be no more, right? But uh, as we know that while we go through this life, life sometimes gets hard, doesn't it? And those of you who've lived longer than the the younger ones here know that even more so. Life gets hard sometimes. But God has given us many gifts to help us in times of trouble. Some of the sweetest of those are God's promises. And, uh, well, let's turn to uh, Romans chapter 8 for a minute. This is all by way of introduction. I want to take a look at a couple of these. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Let's take a look at some of these sweet promises that God has given us. Uh, look at verse 1, where we'll begin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what music that is to the ears of a sinner. That we, in Christ, can no longer be condemned. We who, because of our willful rebellion and sin, justly deserve condemnation. But because of Christ and those who are in Christ, that's been removed. That's music. That's sweet music to the sinner's ear. And another one, verse 18 of chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And we just sang about that. Bound for the promised land. You know, life's full of pain and disease and heartbreak and struggle. But the the apostle says that's not worthy to be compared to what we have in store in the future. Sweet promises that help us through the troubled times. Those who are redeemed, I'd say Romans 8 is shouting ground. And another one of these blessed promises I'd like for us to reflect on today and see it being applied It's probably the most well-known. It's in verse 28 of chapter 8. Here the Lord says, For those... he Let's see. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The New American Standard kind of smooths it out a little bit and says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Really? God works all things for our good? Yes. This promise is bedrock for you to stand on. When life starts falling apart all around us, and the troubles come wave upon wave, this promise can hold you fast. God works all things for our good to those who trust in Jesus. Now, why does God do this? 
What's his goal for doing this? Let's look again, verse 27 through 29. We're picking up in the middle of a thought, and he says, And he who searches hearts, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's the Lord's will that believers be conformed to the image of Christ. That's God's goal for you. And the Spirit, in verse 27, prays according to the will of God, which is that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. Therefore, God works all things out for your good, which is conformity to Christ. So now, what does this look like in real life? Is there an example that we can look at or a life that we can observe where God keeps this promise? I'd say there is in the book of Ruth. So that's where we'll be today. If you turn, please, to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And we're going to observe the Lord keeping this promise. So while you're turning there, I'm going to kind of set the background, give you some context. This story takes place roughly the 14th century B.C. It's between the time of the Exodus and the time of King David's reign. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, he gives a genealogy and he lists Rahab as the mother of Boaz, who's a main character in our book. And she was living at the time that Israel entered the promised land, fought at the battle of Jericho. You remember that's where we meet Rahab. And so her son is a main character in this story. It kind of gives you a time frame about when this takes place. And in any case, it's set during the period of the judges. Okay, now this period is one of the darkest times in the history of Israel. It's marked by rebellion. It's marked by idolatry. It's marked by the people turning from God over and over and over again, relentlessly abandoning the Lord after false gods. And actually, if you turn back one page to the last verse of Judges, this verse kind of gives you a summary of the times when it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? A little too close to home for us. Well, Ruth chapter 1 opens the story with telling of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. If you look at Ruth 1, verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, if you'll recall, in Leviticus chapter 26, God promised to send famine to the land if the people forsook the Lord, if they broke the covenant that He made with them. This was one of the promises. If you keep my covenant, I'll send my rain, your land will produce its fruit. If you turn from me, I won't, and your land will be barren, essentially is, is how the Lord phrased that. So the backdrop to the book of Ruth is chaos. Chaos among the people, judgment from the Lord. That's our backdrop. Now, as just kind of a side note, praise the Lord for 
Ruth 1, verse 1, in the famine. Because our God is holy, and He won't suffer His name to be profaned, and His glory given to another. The judgment in verse 1, in that we can see that God's faithful to keep His promises. He does what He says He will do. Now, if that's true for the curse of famine from Leviticus 26, then that's also true of the promise for your good in Romans 8.28. God does what He says He will do. So, with all this going on around, the narrator of the book of Ruth, who I think is the prophet Samuel, he zooms in on one seemingly insignificant family from the little bitty town of Bethlehem. So give your attention, please, as we read the Scriptures. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. And we're going to read all of chapter 1, the book of Ruth. Hear the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The, names of, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Kilion died so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from that place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go! Return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more.
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Let me let you in on where we're going. This is the point. God works providentially in our lives for His glory and our good. And this includes the hard times. Let me say that again. God works providentially in our lives for His glory and our good. And this includes the hard times. And it's my prayer that through this message of this little book, your faith will be made steady. Trusting that God will keep his Romans 8.28 promise. To work all things for good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, which is ultimately his glory. I've titled the message, Providence Observed. So let's look, we're going to look under three headings, and we're going to observe Naomi's life, and see if we can see the hidden hand of God working through her struggles. So, as the book opens, verses 1 and 2, she and her family are driven from their homeland because of famine. Now, just put yourself in that situation. Having to leave your country, your language, all that's familiar to you because of a famine that's so severe that you can't even find food to eat. So that's the, the situation they find themselves in. So they travel to Moab, and while in this pagan country, the unthinkable begins to happen. First, her husband, Elimelech, dies, and his name means, My God is King. And I think we see that unfold as well in the book. She moves to this foreign country with her husband and her two sons, and her husband dies. Now, for a woman in this culture, in this period of time, that was an enormous blow. Because the husband was the protector, the provider, the source of stability, the source of safety. So Ruth was really shaken when her husband died. Not only for the, the fact that it's her companion, but also it, he was the one who would provide for her. She was. This was a very, very strong blow. Verse 4, now a widow. She suffers another blow and her two, her two sons marry pagan wives. They marry into the Moab culture, marry Moabite wives. Now, this is exceedingly grievous because Moab was a nation hostile to Israel. If you remember the history of Israel and the wanderings in the desert before they entered the promised land, Moab was behind the, the attempt to get Balaam to curse the, the nation of Israel. They were, from earliest of times, hostile to Israel. And not only so, but their god of Moab was Chemosh, this idol, which oftentimes in its worship required 
child sacrifice and human sacrifice. So this was a very dark environment. Uh, his, her sons effectively married the enemy, so to speak, and marry into this dark culture. Verse 5, within ten years, both Naomi's sons died as well. So she moves to this country, driven out because of strong famine. She loses her husband. Her sons marry into this foreign culture of, of folks that do not worship the Lord, who are the enemies. Then, within the ten-year period, both of her sons die. Now, she finds herself with no provision. She's effectively destitute in this cultural setting. A widow, losing her children. Socially, she's without a provider. Things are really dark and depressing for Naomi at this point. It almost makes you want to close the book and not read any more of it. Things keep getting worse and she's deeper and deeper in despair. Calamity and sorrow are pouring in on Naomi, wave upon wave. Can you relate? Have you been there? It's a pretty safe bet that we've been there to some degree or another. Well, continuing on to verse 6 and 7. Naomi hears that the famine in Israel is over. And seeing that, well, she's lost everything where she's at in Moab, she decides to go home. In verses 8 through 12, she tries to convince her daughters-in-law not to go with her. She, you can see her outlook and her interpretation of, of these events. She says, go back to your mother's house and may the Lord provide for you husbands again. And, and you have safety and provision in that regard. Because the Lord had turned against her is the way that she was taking this. Look again, 11 through 13 of chapter 1. Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. No hope, no future, only loneliness, destitution, bitterness for Naomi. Again in verse 20 and 21, when the, the women of Bethlehem are excited to see their, their relatives coming home again. It says, oh, is this Naomi? And her name meaning pleasant. She says, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which is a word that means bitterness. She says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went back full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me that the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Naomi's decided that, well, God is against her. And her in her bitterness and in her despair, she cannot see any good. I'd say that we too are like Naomi and oftentimes feeble and can't see past the storm. 
The famed hymn writer and famous preacher John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, among many others, had a friend named William Cowper. William Cowper wrote hymns with Newton and was a close companion of his. But he struggled with depression. And he shared similar struggles with Naomi. And he wrote a hymn once called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I would recommend it to you. But he lends us aid. Listen to the perspective. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. So first we notice Naomi's blinding sorrow. Next we can notice the hidden hand of God. One key to interpreting this book properly is to understand who the main character is. The Bible is a book about God. And these four short chapters in the book of Ruth are no exception. So this story is not primarily about Naomi or about Ruth or Boaz even. God is the main character. So let's not fail to watch for him as we go through the story. Are there signs of God's hidden work, His hidden hand, working for good in the midst of Naomi's trouble? I think there are a couple of signs that will help us with that. First, Ruth is evidence of God's working. Clue number one, her commitment to her mother-in-law. She says, don't bid me to leave you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Famous words. Your people will be my people. She devotes herself to Naomi, even if it means leaving her own people, leaving her language, her family, everything that's familiar to her. And Naomi's already explained, there's no hope for you. I can't give you any more sons for husbands. So that would mean poverty and widowhood and loneliness for Ruth. But even in the midst of it, Ruth won't let go. She clings in commitment to her mother-in-law. She says, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Talk about commitment. Her language is almost like our wedding vows. Till death do us part, I'm not going to leave you. Naomi, I'll leave my country, my people, my hopes to remarry. I'll stick with you till I'm dead. And where you're buried, I'll be buried, she says. What do you think would motivate her to speak like that? I think the answer is in her words in verse 16. She says, Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Listen. And your God, my God. I think the second clue that Ruth is evidence of God's working is her confession of faith. Naomi, I want your God. And I don't think this is sentimental language because later in the book, Boaz picks up on this. In verse uh, chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, Boaz encounters Ruth. He uh, 
greets her with kindness. He says, your reputation has preceded you. And he goes on to say, verse 11 and 12, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. How you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, here it is, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Is God working in the midst of Naomi's troubles? I'd say He is. Ruth is evidence of that. Well, there's more. I would say Boaz is evidence as well. If you're familiar with this story, Boaz becomes a major figure for us as this story unfolds. Ruth and Naomi come back. They begin to settle again in Bethlehem. Ruth begins to go out and work so that they can have something to eat. And notice what our narrator does. He inserts hints along the way to direct our attention to God's quiet hand working. Clue number one that Boaz is evidence of God's working is the time of year that they arrive. In chapter 1, the last verse, the narrator includes, And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now why is that important? Why did the writer of this portion of Scripture feel that it was included important to include that? Well, that's because Boaz is just around the corner. It's harvest time. And where would he be at harvest time? He'd be in his fields working the harvest. Second clue is whose field that Ruth finds work in. She's going out to work to glean uh, so that they can eat, have something to eat. And it's very interesting, this little hint that our narrator gives us. Chapter 2, verse 3. Slipping in another hint. Ruth just so happens to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. He takes notice of her. He he tells her work her his fields only. He'll make provision for her. The, the guys won't bother you. You can have as much water as you need. Stay here and work. He provides for her. He protects her in that regard. And he never lets her go in, home empty-handed. Later on in the story, he sends her home with loads of food. Lots of food. He provides for her. Ruth being noticed by Boaz is a really big deal. Why is it a big deal? Naomi tells us, chapter 2, verse 20. So this is what's happening. Ruth has gone and worked in Boaz's Boaz field. He's taken notice of her and blessed her and says, you make sure you work here, I'll take care of you. Ruth comes back and Naomi says, well, where did you find work? And she starts to tell Naomi, well, I worked in uh, Boaz's field and and this, and she explains the day. And when Ruth tells Naomi about Boaz, boom, a ray of sunshine pierces through that dark cloud that's been over the head of Naomi this whole time. Remember, she sees bitterness, hopelessness, but all of a sudden there's a light shining through that dark cloud. Boaz, let's read verse, uh, chapter two, verse twenty. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Suddenly hope explodes in the heart of Naomi. You notice the difference in tone from 
the Lord is against me to bless the Lord for the kindness that He's shown. It's almost as if she says, Oh yeah, Boaz! I forgot all about Boaz. How could I forget Boaz? The third clue that Boaz is a evidence of God's quiet working is that he is a kinsman redeemer. And Naomi points this out. He's a close relative of ours, a, re- a redeemer. Now, in Israelite culture, this is a very important position. Okay, The redeemer was a close male relative. He had many roles in Israelite society, such as if, if there was a family member murdered, uh, you can read in Numbers chapter 35 about an avenger of blood, the close male relative who would execute justice for the family. That was the Redeemer. He would also be the one who could buy a family member back from slavery. If you read through the first five books of the Bible, uh, there'll be times where if a family member had to sell themselves into slavery out of poverty, a Redeemer could come and buy them back. If they had to sell their property, like Naomi and Ruth are planning to do in this book, a Redeemer could come and buy the property back. So the name of the dead and their heritage would remain in the family. So this was a very important person in their culture. And Boaz is that person. Another thing a redeemer could do is if there was a male who died, childless, the redeemer could come and marry the widow, and the first child would inherit the dead husband's property and name. So his name and his property could continue in Israel. So what Naomi latches on to is that Boaz can redeem them. Boaz can buy them back from poverty, from destitution, from hopelessness. Boaz is exciting news for these ladies. And Naomi recognizes the hand of God in bringing them to him. Because she says, Blessed be the Lord whose kindness has not forgotten the living or the dead. Now, as a side note, this is something for your further study. Don't miss the role of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer because in that role he typifies Christ. What I mean by that is, in a broad sense, he is a type of the redeemer who would come. So we can look at Boaz in this setting and learn about our Redeemer, the one who would come and buy us back from destitution and very poor circumstance. So don't miss that connection to Jesus here. Well, Cowper continues with his hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Thirdly, notice two happy endings of this story. God has been working for Naomi and Ruth all through these dark days using sorrow to bring about their good and His glory. Chapter 4, towards the end of the story, verses 13 to 17, is where we'll be. Now between the time that Ruth began working the field, they realized Boaz was a kinsman redeemer, Naomi hatches a plan of how Ruth can get married with Boaz. And and there's uh, some twists and turns and some things they have to work through with other close relatives, but eventually Ruth and Boaz marry. Okay, 
and the Lord gives a child. So let's begin reading chapter 4, 13 to 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Obed is a happy ending. Boaz and Ruth end up marrying. The Lord gives her conception as we saw. She has a son who would then be able to carry on the family name and property of her deceased husband and Elimelech, his father. Obed is a happy ending for these ladies. In verses 14 and 15 of that chapter, the Lord receives glory, which is always his aim. He receives glory from the women of Bethlehem for his kindness and provision for Naomi and Ruth. God's chief aim is for his own glory to be displayed. And just as in Naomi's life, that always works for our good, even in the hard times. And do you remember Romans 8.28? God keeps his promises. Obed is a happy ending for this little small family in this story. But is he the ending? The narrator once again includes another peculiar piece of information in verse 17 of chapter 4. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. David is coming. King David, out of little Bethlehem, a descendant of Ruth and Boaz would come, the great King David, who would turn the heart of the nation back to the Lord. But whenever you hear David's name in the Scripture, you should hear another name ringing in your ears. Can you hear it? David, son of David. And the crowd shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For out of little Bethlehem, a descendant of Ruth and Boaz would come of the line of King David, the great king of all kings who would redeem his people, turning their hearts back to God. Now that is a happy ending. This same Jesus is the only hope for sinners. And I point him to you. And I point you to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your sweet promises. They're a firm foundation to stand on as we go through this life. You do what you say you'll do. You're faithful. Thank you for that. Help us, I pray, to trust you. Look to your Son to rejoice in Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.